Hey, welcome back to the Forward Podcast. I'm your host, Lance Armstrong. How is everybody doing? My guest this week, Sharif Suki. Most of you probably have no idea who that is. But man, has he had a life. I got to know Sharif uh, just living here in Aspen and uh, uh, know him and his family and, and my son, Max, plays with his grandson. And uh, as I just learned more and more about his life, I thought, this is so interesting. I'd love for him to come on and talk about the highs and the lows and the peaks and the valleys and how he, so many times in his life, has just said, all right, I'm moving forward. And he really defines forward. So, uh, Sharif, thank you for coming on. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to say a couple things. One, uh, the Stages podcast, most of you may remember that from the last Tour de France, is alive and well, despite what some of my old friends might think. So, Stages is coming to the Colorado Classic this week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We're actually going to be posted up in Denver, the Rhino section of Denver. Rhino meaning River North, right by Coors Field. We're going to be posted up at the, uh, you know, right there in the in the heart of it all, at a really cool winery called the Infinite Monkey Theorem. I know, look it up. Uh, but we'll have the Airstream there. We'll have some swag there. Obviously, there's going to be wine there. Uh, but we, we are going to be there the whole time. We're going to be there for four days, despite the race not being there Thursday, Friday. And then the race is, uh, it's actually on the race course uh, Saturday and Sunday. So come on by the Infinite Monkey Theorem. Come say hey to us. And uh, if you're not in the, in the, in the Denver or Colorado area, just tune in uh, via all the known channels, Facebook Live, YouTube, iTunes, Stages lives on. Last thing before we get to Sharif, uh, I just got back from Napa Valley where I spent just one night. I went out there for my good friend Randy Lewis's 25-year anniversary of his winery. Randy's just, if, for those of you who have met Randy or know Randy, you'll, you'll, you'll agree with me. A couple things. He's one of the best men to ever walk the planet Earth. Number two, he's got the greatest laugh, without a doubt, that you've ever heard. And so congratulations, Randy, on 25 years of, of Lewis Cellars, some of the best cabs uh, and wine, for that matter, in the world. And, uh, buddy, it was great to see you and uh, keep on making great wine. Uh, like I say every week, questions, comments, concerns, send me an email, theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. And uh, uh, enjoy Sharif Suki, a man who really knows what it's like to move forward. Sharif, thank you for being here. My pleasure. I got to know, I feel like I know you because my good friend here in Aspen, Dave Ellswig, who runs Campo, which is our mutual friend, he speaks so highly of you and, and he was just starting to tell these stories about your life and, and the different things that you've done and the different places you've lived and the, just the, the starts and the stops and the restarts and the stops and the re-restarts and I thought, this is a guy I got to talk to. The, the name of this podcast is The Forward. And so The Forward meaning, you know, for me, how I've had to pick up my life and the pieces and try to move forward. And as he would tell me your story, I'd like, this guy, this guy represents forward more than anybody. You're very kind. <laughs> but I think I'm the original refugee. So uh, I left my country, Lebanon, in 1971, thinking I was just going to get an education and go back. Mm. And the civil war started, so I've been roaming around ever since. Right. But before that, you were born in Cairo. I was born, born in, in Egypt and left. Your father was a journalist. Yes. And you guys left when you were maybe five. Yes. And went to Lebanon. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that part of the world, no, people I certainly can't even relate. I've been to the Middle East a little bit, but not back in that time. Well, it was very interesting. And actually, I grew up at a period where we had uh, relative calm for a period of time. So in Lebanon? Or in, in Lebanon. In no, in Egypt, uh, the revolution happened in 1952. I was born in 1953. Um, my father wrote for Newsweek and UPI, so uh, censorship started becoming important, and he couldn't sustain his... Um, 
writing from Egypt, so he moved back to Lebanon. He felt like he was being maybe not spied on, but his but his writing was being literally censored. He had censored. to submit his articles, and if they didn't say what the government wanted him want to say, then he wouldn't be allowed to publish. Yeah. Huh. And then when you, because you mentioned you went to, <clears throat> I loved this article. There was I don't know where I found it here on online, but you, you went to where, where was your you went to university first at uh, Colgate University. Colgate. It was all dudes, and uh, <laughs> right, you, there was something about you expected. You thought you were going to New York City, and you were two hundred miles away, and it was like mostly dudes. Yes, it was an all male school. And oh, all dudes. Oh no. Yes, and nothing to do with the movies that I'd seen about America so far. And you're going. And the first weekend I was there, I said, "Okay, let's go to the city." And they looked at me like I was crazy. Because and they said, "You realize the city is uh, 400 miles away." Wow. So, gave me an incentive to finish school in three years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was so. That was in the early 70s. They we didn't have Google Earth, so you couldn't. You know, even from Lebanon, you would have said, "Oh my God." Uh, that's a long ways away from the city. No, it was an experience. And uh, this is the first years that um, the Colgate accepted women. So slowly it started populating and changing it. And you get used to uh, a different culture. Yeah. You go visit on weekends, uh, all female schools that are supposed to be sister schools. I'm not, you know, I still don't understand how it works, right. but. Uh, well, it sounds like a private like yeah. boarding school almost. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it and and then from there I went Columbia to Columbia University, which was in the city, mm. and got my MBA there, and that was different. Right, party on! It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> you speak Arabic, French, obviously English. That's it. Just those three. Just, just those fluently. Three. Yes. Where did you pick up French? Is that uh, from birth? Interesting. I always spoke French. And then I picked up English when I was nine or ten years old. Hmm. Wow. And when you leave, in, you know, as I read about your life and read about when you graduated and how at that time a, a young, smart man or woman that A, had connections uh, in the Middle East but could speak Arabic was hugely advantageous. Yes, to some, to some extent. Because um, the first bank that I worked for just wanted me to bring money back. Mm. So it, it's advantageous in terms of having basically a business right there. Yeah. All I have to do is accept the premises on the, of the investment and go try to raise money for it. Right. But they weren't spending a lot of time giving me an education about what a good investment is. So you were just raising money? I was just raising money. And after a while, I got tired of that and decided that I could raise money independently yeah. for a variety of banks instead of just one. Right, or for yourself. And um, I wanted to spend more time trying to understand what investments made sense and what investments didn't. Yeah. Hmm. And at which point do you get here to Aspen? The first time was uh, 1972 because a bunch of uh, Kids from Colgate said, we're going to go ski in Aspen. Do you want to come? And for me, anything that had ski involved uh, said, absolutely, yes. You grew up skiing? Yeah, I grew up skiing. In the Middle East? In, the, in Lebanon, yes. People ski in Lebanon? Yeah. See, I learned something every day. I mean, go back to your Bible. Jesus Christ was born when it was snowing. <laughs> See? <laughs> there you go. Okay, so you finally, so these guys want to come ski in here. Yes, so I came and I loved the place and sort well, of stored it in the back of my mind because until then I'd skied mostly in Europe, in, in Lebanon, and to some extent on the East Coast, but it was really miserably cold yep. in those days. <clears throat> so that was, that was your first touch? So my first touch here, and then um, I think in the mid, in the early 80s, I started coming more frequently because... Um, I got married, I had children, I got married the second time, I had more children, and schlepping my kids back and forth to, the, to Europe with mm. ski vacations became a little bit difficult. So I came here, I think in 1985, for a vacation with uh, my second wife, my four children, my three children at the time. And... Uh, 
<laughs> it hurt my back. And while they were skiing, I went shopping for a house, bought a house. And Un unbeknownst to them, uh, or did they know? Yes, no. Well, they weren't very sure what I was doing. My yeah. little kid, my kids were too little to care. Yeah, and my wife was cool. Yeah. So I bought a house, and the next summer we came, and my wife said I could live here if, um, on a full time basis, and so we made the move. Yeah. And, and, which and then we had Lena, he, whom you know. Who, so Lena, for the listener at home, so my little guy, and the, most of the people that listen know, I have five children. So, uh, <clears throat> But the fourth is Max, who's eight years old, and his one of his closest buddies here in town is Luca, your grandson. So they yes. rip around, they ride motorcycles, they, they uh, go to all these different camps, and he's a sweetheart. And, and Luca's mom is Lena, who's also a sweetheart. Yeah. So we were already spending a lot of time here when we had Lena, and when Le before Lena was one, we had actually moved here. Mm. <clears throat> and then when do you buy Mezzaluna, or start Mezzaluna, the restaurant? At the same time, 1986-87. Mezzaluna didn't exist, you started it, or you... It, there was a Mezzaluna in New York that belonged to a friend of mine, I asked him to help me set one up here, mm. and he, was, he, did the, he did so, and we set it up, and it turned out to be very successful. Right. And that was the first Mezzaluna? That was the then first, my first Mezzaluna. Your first Mezzaluna? Yes. And then you go on to open the Mezzaluna in Los Angeles? Two, two in Los Angeles. Two of them there? Yes. One which, in Beverly Hills and one in Brentwood. Which is totally, it's kind of timely, right? I mean, now that O.J. Simpson is set to get out of prison, well, it I brings mean, it all, this story just, it just never, and if you think about it, if I think about it, his story, that story... It changed so many things in this country. It changed the way the media is, the way gossip is, the way <clears throat> your it, restaurant. It, it, it was random. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it no, it was been. one of those things that happens and you don't know why you're in the middle of it. Yeah. But Ron Goldman worked for me. He was a friend. Um, Nicole used to hang out at the restaurant all the time. OJ and you, I can't say we were friends, but we used to hang out at the same gym and he would come to the restaurant from time to time. <laughs> so Goldman was a buddy of yours? Yes. I mean, he's younger, but buddy still. Sweet kid? Very sweet kid. Sweet kid. Adorable. I've watched all these documentaries. You know, I watched, well, I watched a lot of documentaries, but this five-part uh, 30 for 30 that ESPN did on the whole thing, it was just so compelling. And again, to, just to talk about race in America and race in Los Angeles and the right, just how it all came together. <clears throat> We've never seen anything like that. Well, you will notice that you will never get a shot of, um, on any of the programs of Mezzaluna Inside hmm. because I never allowed any of the press to come inside. They must have just been stacked up outside. Outside, yes. And actually, uh, it was just a bad scene. And uh, you could see the division on racial uh, li limits because you'd had uh, all the African-Americans on one side, all the whites on the other side, demonstrating for things while the, while the trial was going on. Mm. And you also see uh, an ugly nature of uh, the public because we tripled our sales and we had lines waiting for lunch and dinner every day. People that just wanted to... We lost every single item that we had that had a logo on it within two weeks. I heard that. I heard that if, if a plate said Mezzaluna, if, yes. if a napkin said Mezzaluna, if it just... Disappeared. Disappeared. Yes. I'm not quite sure how they managed that, but in two weeks, they were all gone. That is... <laughs> That's so screwed up. A, I received a letter one time, which I wish I had kept because it was a lady from Indiana who sent me a letter saying that she'd come, she'd come and had lunch at Mezzaluna with two of her friends, there were three of them, and she spent $65 in some sense, and there was nothing that she could take home with her. <laughs> what do you mean there was nothing? There was no plate with a logo, it was, she was too late. Ah, because she had heard that people were, were... No, she came, she ate, she wanted to take a memento with her home, and she considered it perfectly normal. She should have paid with a credit card. She'd have the receipt. <laughs> L.A. In, in that day was wild and crazy anyways, just like Aspen was. Yes. I mean, we, we 
before we started recording, we were talking, I mean, the old, and I talk a lot of, about Hunter Thompson on this podcast. I never met him. I never came across him. Never met John Denver. I knew both of them. Right. They were, yeah. they were pillars of this community. They, yes. And the stories were so big and bold, and sometimes you wonder if they're true. Hey, look, I've had many conversations with uh, Hunter at the bar of Mezzaduna. Never understood what was going on, what he was saying, or what the point was. But it was fun. You, you didn't understand? No, I didn't understand the way he spoke. You think Jim Cramer speaks quickly. Right. Uh, Hunter spoke 10 times faster. Right. Well, he was, and, a, little, he was a little revved up. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't want to make comment on that, but he was entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. But it was fun. You'd have a conversation with him, and you never knew what it was going to be about. Right, right. And if and if if Nicole Simpson and 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 Ron Goldman aren't killed, does Mezzaluna just keep? I mean, I get it. It's cyclical places, especially in Los Angeles. They're they're hot for five years, maybe ten years, and then the 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 crowd goes somewhere else. But is did that murder put the the restaurant out of business? No, I closed it. You just closed, totally you got, disgusted you got fed up with, with it. it. Yeah. yeah. On your on just your choice. Yes. I mean, look, the, the restaurant business is very particular. Mm. You work very hard and the results are very limited. So I, I opened a restaurant in Aspen that turned out to be a very a huge success completely by accident. Uh, I was 33 years old. My wife was 28. She was dropped that gorgeous. All her friends were top models and they were hanging out at the restaurant. And for some crazy reason, uh, Jack Nicholson and Michael Douglas decided to come and hang out. And uh, Well, if all the uh, women are dropped dead gorgeous and models, uh, I can yeah. tell you where Jack Nicholson's going to be hanging out. And maybe that's what that was it. <laughs> and then you know, you do things. Since I love skiing, I gave a special discount to the, the, all the ski instructors and the people who worked for the, uh, <laughs> the, the for the ski company with no particular intent, uh, just because I liked them and they were buddies of mine, and yeah. I wanted them to hang out with me. And the net result is they talk to their customers and they bring everybody to the restaurant. So very quickly, we became very popular. It wasn't by design. It wasn't by, um, uh, it wasn't anything that I had planned. Yeah. But um, it puts you in a position to be very successful in something you knew nothing about. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you think you're a genius. Yeah. Uh, you know. Get it all figured out. Yeah, of course. And then I went and opened two or three more restaurants in Los Angeles, and I found out what the reality was right. and how hard it is to run a restaurant business. Right. Got to be there all uh, the time. All the time. And after a few years of doing this, I said, it's not worth it. You work too hard. And right. if you're going to work that hard, you're better off doing something else yeah. uh, that will have much better results. Which is what you did. And plus the um, the... <laughs> The, um, the, the everything that happened at the Brentwood location with Nicole and um, Ron, and the the reaction of people to this was ugly. Yeah, and turns you off very quickly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely it 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 polarized our country. I, I like I I don't I'll say it again. I don't think we've seen anything like that ever. It was. No, I, I agree with you. And it just, yeah. it just keeps, it's the story, it just won't, I mean, the 30th, they won the Academy Award for Best Documentary, and now OJ's getting out, and it's like, it just, it keeps, it's just, it's well, that big. He, he is a nice, charming guy. Oh, there's, I, I, it, when you watch, shows, if you watch the, yeah. the five-parter, yeah. you can see this guy could charm the back legs off a donkey. Yeah. But, I don't know. So there's probably other parts that aren't so charming. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah. you know, Shakespeare wrote a piece about it, so it's Othello all over again. Yeah. So it's nothing new. Yeah. Hmm. So when you decide, um, by the way, before I go any farther, you, you mentioned your ex-wife and her friends. I mean, if you just Google, you, yeah, you can see that, uh, I mean, you're, you're, Never mind. I'm going to get myself in trouble talking about your wife. It's okay. She's a lovely lady. <laughs> beautiful. And she's beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Yes. Hello. And we're now exes, but we still love each other and we're still very good friends. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
So you decide that this is just, you're hustling too much, it's taking too much time, and it's... No, no, no. Bottom line is I ran out of money. Owning the restaurants. Owning the restaurants, I ran out of money. I had a very big knot with my kids, my family, my parents who were um, exiles from Lebanon. So um, I was spending more money than I was making. Right. I had a little bit of capital left over, and after about seven years of living here and having fun, I ran out. <laughs> so I had to go back to work. Right. The party's over. <laughs> exactly. And then you, but, but to me, it's just so crazy that then whatever you call it, run out of money, need to do something, to then go uh, the arc of the story as it was at the time, to then say, okay, oil and gas. Most of these guys are engineers, it seems, or geologists, or their their family was in that business, or, I mean, they just sort of walk right into it. So for me, it was a process. Once I decided that um, I needed to go back to work, I left Aspen, went to Los Angeles, and my skill is to raise money for projects that I believe in. And since I'd been quasi-retired for seven years, I didn't know if I still had the skill, but at least I started there. And the premise. Sorry, this is no different than what you did right out of college, going yes. to the Middle East, asking for money, bringing the money back to the American yeah. investment banks, etc. But by then, hopefully, I've learned something. I'm 40 years old, and I've learned something about where to, where to invest. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to focus on an industry that was being changed by technology. And I came down to two industries, one which was the entertainment business, since I was based in Los Angeles, and one that was um, the, the energy business, where technology was enabling you to do things that you would have needed a Cray computer five years earlier, that you could now do on a desktop and eventually on a laptop. So those were the sort of, and after a year of raising money randomly to different companies that needed it, I wanted to focus on one industry. And I decided, uh, I mean, I would have loved to do the entertainment business, but this is the time of Napster, if you remember. Sure, very You could well. be incredib incredibly successful in completely dislocating an industry, but make no money at it. Right. And Sean Parker ended up making his money with Facebook, not with Napster. That's right. So I, I looked and I couldn't figure out how, as an intermediary or financial person, you make money in the entertainment business. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are very few that do. Y yeah. So uh, I decided regretfully that I had to move to Houston and go into the energy business. <clears throat> so, and, and there I could see how technology was going to change things. Yeah. And it has. Hmm. Technology underground or, 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 or Everything. literally From on the ground. Seismic imaging where right. you can see so you know. much better what's going on, you improve your probabilities. It becomes a, a statistical game. Because it's true, you know, it, it, it used to be called, uh, and, and again, I'm not, I'm just a barely get out of high school guy, but to me it seems like it used to be called exploration. Yes. And now it's just production. Yes. There's no more exploring. Yes. We know, or you guys know where to go. You don't have to explore, right? Okay, because there's so much that you know that you have to uh, that you just have to produ produce. Yep. Because yeah, I mean, when you know somebody like me thinks of of you know an oil man, you think, well, they're going to go drill a well. Oh, it's dry, and you know, back, maybe back in the day, they drilled a bunch of holes and they were dry, and then they hit one that was that had oil, and they made up for it. But now they don't they don't drill dry holes anymore. Very few. And um, it's getting better and better. Yeah. You had to get to be in a position where you figured out where there was a trap. Now they're able to go and actually um, get the hydrocarbons from the source rock. So you don't even need a trap anymore. Mm. So it keeps evolving. So 20 years ago, I wanted to be in a business where technology would make a difference. But if you'd asked me 20 years ago what the fast forward would be, I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, just, I would have predicted something completely off base. Yeah. And you would have come back 20 years later and said, you're crazy, look at what you said right. and where it went today. Yeah. So you just made it up as you went along. 
always watching technology because it changes things very, very rapidly all the time. So you watch and you decide, given what I now know, things have changed. Right. And having smart people around you, I would imagine. Always. Always. Because I'm not, as you, as right. you said, I'm not an engineer, right. I'm not a geologist, I'm not a geophysicist. So I surround myself with the best. Yeah. So, and so that um, I can be one step ahead of the next guy who's going to figure it out. And your big, in your big win or your big, your baby, as you call it, in one of these interviews, that Shanier um, was the company. When did you start Shanier? Twenty years ago. Twenty years ago. Nineteen ninety-six. Still around years. today. Yes. And this is the one where you referred to. By the way, another article said Shanier, which I didn't know this until I read this. Obviously, is Cajun. It, I didn't Cajun language or Cajun dialect, for elevated land above a swamp. Yes. That's how you came up with the name? Yes. Because uh, uh, there's a bunch of swamps in Louisiana. And if you want your equipment to be safe, you better find some elevated land. Yeah. Yeah, don't leave if, it in the it, swamp. No. <clears throat> so you start Chenier 20 years ago, and this thing just... By the way, at one point, I believe, and it came through our mutual friend Dave Ellswig, I think you had a son who had cancer at some point in his life and you gave some shares of Chenier to Livestrong. Yes. Which... Because back then I read your book to help me through the process. With your son? Yes. Oh, so he was sick then? Yes. Right, maybe two years after you. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So, and they, and that's the story of, and I'm not there anymore. My story, my history with Livestrong feels a little bit like your history with Chenier. Right, that's that's what you call your baby. I, I considered Livestrong my baby. The paths crossed when you donated some shares uh, to the foundation. Uh, I think they were trading at five bucks a share, and they probably had a policy where no matter what, no matter how optimistic people were about the stock, we sell it the day we get it, which they did, and then the stock goes to 80, 70. 70. <laughs> 80, actually. At the 80 bucks. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. So you start Chenier, and, and this is, is this whole idea about liquid uh, uh, natural gas and liquefied natural gas. and No, no. I started Chenier basically to take advantage of the improvements in seismic technology. So that was my first go at it. Knowing where it is. Knowing, being able to image better, having sort of a, an MRI instead of an X-ray mm. to look at the ground, and it actually the same technology. Because computing power is becoming so big that you can actually image much better. So it improves your statistics. And I did this for two years fairly successfully, raised some, um, some money to, to do it. We had nothing to get too excited about, but it was a pretty good success. Hmm. And we found some reserves, and then I became um, convinced that we weren't finding enough to meet the demand in the United States. And if this was the best that we could come up with, we're going to need to import gas. So my second iteration was to start import facilities. Okay. And um, that turned out to be... These are huge, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, order of uh, magnitude, a billion and a half to two billion to invest. <laughs> and... I'm out. <laughs> no, I'll take your credit card. <laughs> And then um, Alan Greenspan decided to get behind the idea two or three years after I started it. And um, when that happened, then we were floating. And we had a case where uh, the stock of Chenier went from two or three dollars to 40. Hmm. And we did very, very well. Um, we built $2 billion worth of facilities in Louisiana. To import. To import gas. From the Middle East, from Russia. Or wherever they oh, had it. Yep. Okay. Um, and then the shale revolution started really after uh, Katrina and Rita hit New Orleans and gas prices went through the roof. Mm -hmm. So high prices allowed people to try new stuff and it worked. Hmm. And all of a sudden, it looked like an import facility was the last thing anybody needed. So the stock went back from 40 to 1. This is my point. I mean, the, the ups and downs of the story. Yes. And then uh, a couple of years later, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, you're looking for how do you salvage a $2 billion investment that we've made that um, it, at the moment seems to be useless. And 
um, the idea was that if we have that much gas in the United States and they're really starting to look promising, and it, we had to wait two or three years to see if it was more than a blip. Because of what you just said, the shale revolution. Yes. Which we had to see if it was real or not. What's the shale revolution? Shale formations are known. They're very thick and viscous, so they're very hard to produce gas from. But they know, they've been around forever, everybody. We've, we've known that they exist for 100 years. When gas prices of Katrina and, after Katrina and, and Rita went up, people were able to actually test new production methods to see how you can get gas out of the shale. Hmm. And it worked. And in, in the beginning, it worked at high prices, and then the technology got better and better, and today it works for almost nothing. Yeah. We have the cheapest gas in the world. Right. So, so at this point, you're holding all these import facilities, and, the, and if anything, we just need, we need to be exporting. Right. So you then need to take the investment from $2 billion to $20 billion. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm out again. <laughs> <laughs> you can have all the credit cards. Because, not... I mean, you've got the storage, and you've got the docks, and that's, you can use whether you come in or go out. Hmm. It's the same. But then on one side, you have kind of a jacuzzi where the hot water where you bring very cold liquid down to ambient temperature. That's an easy process. Uh, and that was the regasification. Yeah. On the other side, you have the refrigerator. A bunch of gases that go in and you have to cool down natural gas to minus 260 degrees to make it liquid. Huh. And when you do that, it loses 600 times its size. So it becomes manageable to put it on a ship and transport it. Hmm. So the refrigerator is much more expensive than the jacuzzi. Right. And we could export? We were allowed to export? No. Well, yes, but people didn't understand that. Got it. So if you look at the rules and look at the laws, then yes, you can, unless you demonstrate that is against the public interest, and it doesn't define what public interest is. Hmm. So the interpretation is that as long as it doesn't affect American consumers, and price doesn't enter into the question, it's simply availability of molecules. So if you called and said, hey, I have no gas in my house, then that would be a problem. But short of that, there is no impediment. Now, politically, if it's not acceptable because you raise prices domestically too much, they don't have to say no, but they don't have to say yes either. Right. So they can... Yeah, then you're stuck. ...dragging, and you're stuck forever. Yeah. But, Somebody told me that Australia is having this issue. Yes. Because they're export... They've signed these long-term agreements with Asia and yes. et cetera. And so they're exporting all of this gas they have, and meanwhile, they're having these rolling blackouts in... Yes, but they have distances. To bring that gas to the cities would be very expensive. Yeah. Because hmm. it's a very large country with very de very densely, uh, very sparsely populated. Right. So you need to put a pipeline for 2,000 miles to get it from where, it's, from where it is to where you can uh, consume it. Maybe and it's can, expensive gas. Maybe you can help them with that. I got my hands full. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But so the, the stock from here to 40, back to one, and then back up, because I'm assuming you figure out the, the you go from the, the, you raise the 20 billion to convert the facilities. Okay, to, so once we did this and we came up with a business model to finance all this, the stock doubled for every year for five years. Yeah. So we went from one to 80 in five years. Yeah. Yeah. And the board dynamic? I only ask because I, you know, I'm I'm trying to, or I am comparing your baby to my baby, and the board dynamic was was a real problem. Combination of things. First, I lost some very good members because some of them got to retirement age, and some of them got tired and mm. said, "Reef, we've been with you for a long time. We want to go do something else. We've been through ups and downs." Uh, that's enough. We had a nice run. We're right. at the top. We want to leave. <laughs> They're tired. <laughs> yeah. And those who stayed got in a situation where my management team and I um, negotiated some contracts that turned out to be very lucrative when the stock moved to where it moved. So granting a stock at $1 is one thing. And then when the stock goes to 
$70, then that compensation package looks obnoxious. Right. But it's all performance tied. Right. In hindsight, it's easy to criticize. Yeah. Well, you can read online. I mean, it, yeah. it's the first thing that comes up about you. Yeah. If you put your name in yeah. Google, it, the first thing that comes up is your compensation from 2013. Right. The highest paid executive in in the world or in America or in America. Yeah. With a big number. Yeah. And people, you know, people look at that and that's ridiculous. That's how could you do it? But if you, like you just said, if it's tied to performance. It's very simple. They, um, they, and it, when the math was over, they gave me 11 million shares. Yeah. Which, uh, when I made my deal, was worth eleven million dollars, and which it took it took me eight years to earn them. Yeah. In fact, some of it I haven't earned yet. They're paying me this year, next year. Yeah. So it, it it's for eight years worth of effort, and the compensation was an eleven million dollar package when we entered it, right. when when we did it. Right. Of course, you take that same number and you multiply it by seventy, and it's a totally different number. Right. It's a big number. Yeah. Right. But they, so, but nobody divides by eight when they do that. Yeah, right. On on top of that, so yeah. the the 2013, the portion that came in in 2013 was, I think, the stock was at 40 or 50, and because of the milestones that I had to meet to uh, to make to 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 earn those shares, um, there was a bunch of shares that came in at that that year. It turned out to be. A very significant number. It was a big number. Yeah, but uh, the people like forget to say in 2015 when the stock didn't move, I made a dollar. Yeah. No, they have been, they don't write that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> the, the lowest paid CEO in America is this guy, Sharif <laughs> yeah. Suki. This poor sob made a dollar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so. no, they didn't write that article. No. No. Um. What do you? What's your take on fracking? Fracking is so because I have no idea, but if you looked on the line uh, on the internet, you you know there's there's I have friends that are in that business, and then I have friends that are environmentalists, and it, it the the views are so wildly different, I'm and not, I have no idea. Cause I, I'm I'm not quite sure how to respond. It's a process, okay? Right. You're doing something to the earth that is not necessarily natural. Mm. Was it it's harmful or helpful? It's hard to tell. Right. I don't see any significant risk. Yeah. You're extracting hydrocarbons. Um, yeah. If you take, <laughs> I, if you want to take the, 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 the water argument that you're polluting water, it's nonsense. In fact, this idea that the oil or the, the 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 carbons are coming through the water table to okay, the ground. Okay, so you're drilling at ten, twelve, thirteen thousand feet underground, yep. and the water table is at three or four hundred feet. So protect your well, come uh, well, and you will have no problem. So if if somebody misbehaves and doesn't do what they need to do, uh, punish them. So the issue would be some sort of leakage. Is it, yeah, in there the is water a leakage, but that happens very, very rarely. Right. Now there is hydrocarbon in nature. You can go to Santa Barbara and you can see that there is oil in the water. And it comes because it's much shallow um, formations and they leak into the water around that. It's natural, it's a natural process. Mm. If you look at the first oil that was discovered in the United States in Pennsylvania, it was on the ground. So that leakage process, it happens regardless. Right. Okay. So when you drill a well, protect your well. Absolutely. Right. Okay. And be ruthless with people who cheat. Yeah. But um, the notion that we hurt water, fine. So eliminate golf because uh, golf courses use 20 times more water than all the water that is used. Listen, in. Shreve, uh, you could have said anything today. Yeah. But you can't propose eliminating golf. The, the list the regular listener will tell you. Then let me frack. Let, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't want to take a side here, but I'm not giving up golf. Well, but okay, so but this is what we do. Yeah. Okay. The the, the water and the pesticides that you do to irrigate right. your golf courses is much bigger than the water used in the energy industry. I I get it. Okay. I get it. That's so, that, that's like somebody saying in, 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 yeah. you know, somebody once told me that that the that the 
the carbon footprint, and I'm not again. This is just what yeah. I heard. The carbon footprint for Elon Musk to build a Tesla is far greater than somebody building a you know a regular car powered by gasoline. I don't know if that's true or not, I but, it, but it, it it doesn't matter. I mean, you have to make compromises if you want to have your quality of life. Yeah. And for you and me, quality of life is not the same as for somebody who lives in India or in China. For sure not. Okay, and when you have a billion people who have no access to electricity, it's very hard to tell them, just be ecologically clean. Yeah. So I'd like to be able to cook at my home first before yeah. I can think about those things. Yeah. So there's a balance that you have to get in everything. And I absolutely agree with the concept of paying for your sins and paying for your luxuries. Hmm. There you go. Let's talk about Hillary Clinton. Okay. You had a big event for her here in, what was it, a year ago maybe? Yes. More than a year ago? Yes. <clears throat> what happened? To her? Well, just... Yeah, well, she lost. She, I know that. <laughs> I'm not that stupid. Uh, you must be. But by the way, too, you in the in the oil and gas space, there, there couldn't have been many of you guys, got like guys like you, that held fundraisers for Hillary Clinton. Listen, I'm. Um, I I am not partisan. I'm bipartisan. I don't think you can run a country especially a country of the size of the United States, without having consensus and without being able to work with uh, people who disagree with you. Yeah. So I, I think uh, in terms of Hillary Clinton, she was one of the best prepared persons that I've known. She's amazingly um, well read and well thought on most issues. Uh, I understand my business, so uh, she spoke intelligently about my business, uh, which showed you that she took the time to really understand what the issues were and uh, all the different implications. When she was Secretary of State, she understood the, it, that if the energy revolution would continue in the United States, it would become a powerful geopolitical tool. And as Secretary of State, she promoted that. Yeah. Uh, she understood some of the trends that were happening way before conventional wisdom caught up with her and uh, from businesses that i don't understand as well uh, she always made sense and i assume that if she took the time to understand my business she also took the time to understand the other businesses so so she was incredibly well prepared very intelligent and very reasonable in her approach to things so i thought she would made an excellent executive for the country so i supported her um, I'm disappointed that she didn't get elected, right. but I'm still a fan of hers and of Bill. Uh, the president did a phenomenal job in his eight years in power. Hmm. And um, I agree. I, I don't. I don't take many positions like that, but I, I can't. You can't disagree. But I'm also a fan of Ronald Reagan. So sure. the, the, the Bushes. Uh, when you were in and around H. W. Bush. H. W. Yes. I love that man. Yeah. What a sweet yeah. man. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. He tried to steal my girlfriend once, though. That pussy has good taste. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, can't was, blame, you can't blame people for good I, taste. I will tell you, so Anna and I had just started dating, and uh, his library is at Texas A&M, and so in, a long time ago, he started a, a cancer organization and so he, this was the anniversary him and diane feinstein like bipartisan cancer effort <clears throat> and they asked me to come to this anniversary dinner in college station anna who's you know pretty liberal i said yeah we're, we're just starting dating." i said well we're going to go over to college station and this thing with george you know george hw bush she's like what she, she's just thinking no way so we sit down he she sits next to the president and within five minutes, she leans over. She's like, oh, my God, I love this man. Like the charm, I mean, so smart and, and polite and charming and warm, just amazing. Real sweetheart. Can't judge a book by the cover always. Um, tell me about, uh, how do you say the new company? Tellurian? Tellurian. Tellurian. Which means from the earth. 
In Cajun? No, in English. <laughs> Tellurian. Yeah. From the earth. Yeah. Same thing as Chenier or... Well, adapting twist? the business model to what's happening today, things change. Nothing stays the same. Yeah. So you, we are now in a commodity, in a commodity world. Natural gas is becoming global. What we do here is going to impact what people are doing in China and mm. India and Europe. And um, pervertly now, the two big uh, powers in, in the the natural gas business are Russia and the United States. Life is not fair. <laughs> the rich gets richer. <laughs> And Tellurian's a public company. But Tellurian is a public company, Because at yes. one point you said, I'll never, I'll never deal with a public company. Yeah, but I don't know how to raise $20 billion without being public, yeah. so... Oh, you do I too. tried my you, credit you, card you, in yours. Your own, you've, raised, you've raised $320 billion over the course of your life. <laughs> a lot, but mostly in public companies. Yeah. So that was the only way to... To, to, to get to where I to wanted to go fast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You work on it every day? No. Um, I brought most of my management team with me from Chenier. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> so they followed I, you. Yeah, so I'm not an employee of the company. I'm just a shareholder. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. What about, uh, and I'll let you go. I know you got to run and, by the way, Clinton was here yesterday. Is he, today yes, or yesterday? I had lunch with him yesterday. You had lunch with him yesterday. Yeah. How's he doing? He's doing well. He's, um, as charming and he's, as he's, intelligent as he's always been. About charm, we talked about yeah. charming earlier. I mean, this yeah. guy. How about that? I, I haven't had anybody on the podcast. Like, yeah, I was like, bring up a president. Yeah, I had lunch with him yesterday. That's pretty cool. It's fortuitous. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, is global warming real? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have, if you put the 100 smartest guys in the world in one room and they all say, 100 out of 100 say yes. Then my dumbass says, well, yes. Now, to be, um, to, to think that we really know the reasons and why and how, mm. um, maybe we don't. But is global warming real? Yes. Um, is it a, a lo very long cycle? Maybe. Because, um, you know, a million years from today, people would look and say, yes, it was a bad 200 year cycle. But in 200 years, we might be dead. So you got to do some, whatever you can hmm. to eliminate the risk. You don't have any certainty. Yeah. Okay, so I would say global warming for the time being is very real. Whether it's just, uh, we can identify the causes exactly, uh, I'm not sure, but there's a preponderance of evidence that shows that we can do something to mitigate. And if that's the case, then we should mitigate. Right. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we're making those choices. So slowly, we are. Um, nothing well, happens very quickly. The public, I think. Yeah. But, you know, on a higher level, I'm, I'm not sure that, well. You mean policy decisions? Yeah. No, we're not making right. policy. But, but right now, we're living in uh, the twilight zone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, uh, but, if you see, but it's not necessary. I mean, it's not... Simply because somebody says, I don't believe in it, doesn't mean that uh, you go one notch lower at the level of the state governors or at the level of the mayors of major cities, uh, and they can't be participant in trying to mitigate the, the issues. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can think that you're going to save the coal industry in the United States, that's not gonna happen. Now, will people still use coal? Yes, of course, people still smoke cigarettes. Right. Okay, so, but there will be a syntax that, will be applied if not at the federal level at the state level or at the local level yeah. you try to go build a coal plant somewhere today right not gonna happen no exactly so it'll happen so people will do the right thing sometimes more slowly than you want yeah. them to but they will do the right thing what about nuclear energy well it's too expensive today so there's no economic rationale that's the, such the, a bad rap but if people then people say it's so clean yes but at the end of the day uh at the end of the life of the thing, you're afraid about what happens with the, the, the with the residuals. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's a there's a big fear there's a big fear factor. Sure. But um, I mean the the one step that I that I, I've that been advocating for a long time is slap a carbon tax so that people start having an incentive 
to figure out how to do it differently. Right. On individuals. On everything. Yeah, on corporations. Uh, on getting corporations. I mean, if you if if you emit if you emit carbon, you pay. Seems like an idea. Yeah, and uh, it's it's an idea that has made the rounds, and everybody talks about it. And coal would be taxed more than oil, and oil would be taxed more than natural gas, and nuclear would not be taxed at all, and solar would not be taxed at all. Yeah. One day we will find the limits to solar too. Yep. I mean, there's there's nothing that comes free. Okay, with right now, solar, okay, everybody's in love with it. It's great. You put the solar panel and shines, and it, it seems like it's harmless. Yeah. But let's test it. Right. Yeah. We'll see. Interesting. Sharif, thank you. This has been fascinating. Lance, I feel, thank I, I you. feel like I went to uh, you know an hour-long energy class. Yes, and we didn't even talk about car icon. Yeah, no, I but you, you know, once once you told me we talked about Carl. That's yeah. not true. We talked about Carl Icon before. Yeah. Who, if you read about you online, Carl Icon single handedly pushed you out of your baby. But once you and him sat down, you said it before we went live. You sat down with him, and you guys had a gentlemanly conversation, and you explained your position. And he says, "It sounds like I did you a favor." It's exactly right. He's and a very charming individual. Yeah. It was it was a fun conversation for a couple of hours. And, and 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 he's having fun and you're having fun and everybody's good. Yes. Yeah. We need more of that in the world. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like uh, like I said at the top of the show. If you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please, God knows I need suggestions, um, or questions, or concerns, or criticisms, or whatever, let me know. Send me an email. Send it to theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. Theforwardpodcast at wedo, W-E-D-U, sport singular.com the forward podcast at we do sport.com 